567, where is the blessing, fourth in the series, in peacemaking and in persecution? Preached in the First Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown on Sunday, March 28, 1971. The text, Matthew 5, the ninth verse, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And the tenth verse, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. Shalom. That is the ancient word that the Hebrews have been using for centuries to express to us the same greeting that many of the younger people in our generation try to give unto us when they flash to us the peace sign. It means peace, goodwill. May all good things be yours. Peace. Men, since the beginning of all creation, have been most anxious for peace. We pray for it. We hope for it. We dream for it. We fight for it. Because of all things, we most of all want peace. There's not a person within the sound of this preacher's voice who has not thought with him on more than one occasion that if only we had peace, then would we really be happy. Most of us think this way, don't we? It's a pretty good idea. There's only one thing wrong with it. God, the Bible, and Jesus Christ cannot agree with it. Jesus, right here in this passage, tries to tell us that the happy people are not those people who pray for peace and long for peace and hope for peace. Happy, says he, and blessed are those who are peacemakers. You see, there's a big difference between someone being peaceable wanting peace, honoring peace, cherishing peace, and someone who is known as a peacemaker. Well, what is a peacemaker? Simple logic tells us we cannot be peacemakers unless we know those things that make for peace. The Bible keeps on insisting, you see, that, that peace is a, a fruit of the Spirit, like joy and happiness. It's a byproduct of something far deeper than of itself. It's a fruit, and as a fruit, if it's going to bear it, it must have roots. 
And you can't possibly understand peace unless you understand those things, those roots that make for peace. Reconciliation with one's God, that, that's one of the main roots of the fruit of peace. Basically what those big theological words mean is simply you can't possibly think of having peace within yourself, peace with your fellow man, unless first you are at peace with your God. Peace first with God, and then the other peace can come. And this is a fact of the Bible that we had best remember, and I'm afraid in this day when there is no peace in our world. Part of the problem rests in the fact that we forget this ancient biblical truth of God, especially in these days when we have nation against nation, race against race, generation against generation where we see fighting and violence, anything and everything but peace in our streets, in our homes, in our offices, throughout all of our society. May we never think that just because these people are warring against one another it is always a fight between right over wrong and justice over injustice. I wish that were the cause of every conflagration and every embattlement. But ladies and gentlemen, that's not true, and best we wake up to this fact, lest we be drawn into battles that are not sincere, nor are they right. Because much of the hostility that is in this world today, I am convinced of it, is because there are lots and lots of people who are not at peace with their God. And they'll join any cause and fight for any fight. Because within them there is a civil war going on and there's no peace in here. And they want to spread that germ throughout all of society. May we never forget that. Lest we become like the ancient crusaders and try to take out our own personal wishes and our own desire to play God and give to that the righteous name of holiness. No, no. There cannot be peace on earth and goodwill toward men unless there is peace between oneself and his God. And the Bible tells us in the New Testament that this is possible. You see, this is why Jesus Christ came to earth. He is our peacemaker. He is the one who not only proclaims but effects our peace with God. He has come down as God and he says, I love you, I know you, I forgive you, and if you believe in me, you are forgiven. Go in peace. You see, these words Jesus spoke unto us, as he said, because in him we have our peace. As Paul puts it, he himself is our peace. And there is no other peace than a man can attain between himself and God apart from Jesus Christ. But in our Lord, 
we have that peace that passeth all understanding, and we can be reconciled with God, and peace will never come on earth until we understand that it can come only through the root of a person having peace with his God. Secondly, another root of peace is righteousness. It's strange, but wherever you find the word righteousness in the Bible, usually, not too far behind, you'll find this word peace. The psalmist does an excellent job in putting this in capsule form when he said, Righteousness and peace, they have kissed each other. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews had the order correct when he called Jesus Christ first, the king of righteousness, and then after that, the king of peace. Our Lord sums it up best, though, when he, when he tries to tell us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all other things, and editorially let me say that includes peace, all these things shall be added unto you. Do you get the order? First righteousness. And then there will be peace. But how often we try to reverse the order. How often we try to tell people, including ourselves, if only we can have peace, then everything will be all right. The Bible does not believe in that sequence. The formula is righteousness first, then peace. You see, we all want peace. Hitler promised the Nazis a thousand years of peace. Japan wanted peace. That's why they went to war. Even that great American Teddy Roosevelt, it is said of him that he wanted peace just as long as it never interrupted his fighting. We all want peace, yes. But you see, it is the price that we are not willing to pay for peace. And the price for peace is righteousness. God has no other way of bringing this fruit into the world without the root of righteousness. And how burdened he must be up there today as he is hearing from pulpits all over this land and every land on the face of the earth, prayers for peace when he knows that down in the hearts of many of those prayers there is not the same desire for righteousness. How burdened he must be when he knows that we, in trying to seek the goal, are not willing to walk in the way of it. You see, peace will never come here on earth, ladies and gentlemen, until that day comes when we love God's righteousness more than we love our possessions, our prominence, our pride, and our greed, because without righteousness there is no peace. And thirdly, we find another root of peace, <laughs> responsibility. Responsibility. Remember, Jesus, in one of his last conversations with his disciples, said unto them, Peace, peace I leave with you, 
My peace I give it unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Did it ever strike you to ask the question, why did Jesus feel that he had to add that clarifying clause? Why did he designate that there is a peace that the world can give and there's a peace which only he can give? I guess it's because he realizes that there are two kinds of peace in the world, and many times we confuse them. The world offers that peace which is pictured as tranquility, serenity, the absence of all conflict, the erasing of all, all tension, the troubled, free, and quiet life. That, we think, is peace. Well, there are some people that have that kind of peace and they all can be found one place in the cemetery they're dead because the kind of peace that Jesus offers is that peace which only the living can know it is that peace that comes not by running away but by running into the problems and the tasks and the responsibilities of life it is that kind of peace that comes not with resignation or with retreat, but it is that kind of peace that comes when you can face the enemy, confront him and become victorious over him. If Jesus Christ, if he was here himself in person standing in this pulpit, in crucial days like these, do you think he would be standing here talking about tranquility? Do you think he would be here giving a sermon on the peace of mind? <laughs> you can be sure he would not. He would be trying to muster all of us to assume the responsibility which we have as Christians to go out into the world and to face the enemies of the evil horse and to gain victory over it and to bring peace into this world. This is why you see Jesus seemingly, but to some, appears to be contradicting himself when he says in another place, I do not bring peace. Think not that I bring peace, I bring a sword. He is trying to tell us that his presence into the world, either in the body or by the power of his Holy Spirit, which is with us, we are to use that sword to cut away and hack at all that masquerades for the real and the true of life. We are to get down to that core where there is righteousness and where there can be reconciliation and where people can really become the creatures that God intended them to be. We're to use that sword of righteousness and that sword of reconciliation. And when we do in facing the opposition of evil, then and only then shall be their peace. What do you think would have happened if only God had sat up in heaven and, and just talked about peace on earth and goodwill toward men? There would be no such thing as even the hope for peace. But God, you see, just does not talk. God was responsible. He took the initiative. He crawled himself into the form of a human being and he came down here on earth to show people how to fight and how to fight against principalities and powers of the darkness and how to gain a victory over them.
So you see, ladies and gentlemen, this, this is where our blessing is. When we know personal reconciliation, when we are seeking first the righteousness of God, when individually we take upon ourselves the responsibility of being a peacemaker, then, you see, we are really acting in no other way than Jesus Christ himself. We are a fellow heir of our Lord's. We are a son of God. And when we take this position and assume this stature, there is but one thing that we can know, happiness and blessed. For not only are we called, but we know that we ourselves are the sons of God. And then we come to the eighth and the last of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is only right that this is the last parable because it is the one that perhaps we dislike the most. Because, you see, none of us like to be persecuted for any reason whatsoever. Well, we like people to feel sorry for us once in a while. We, we enjoy somebody that give us a good, sympathetic ear. To be persecuted? Nah. That's a little bit different. We don't like to be talked about slandered, the topic of conversation in, in little social groups. We, we don't like to be ostracized, do we? No matter for what sake. But the Bible tells us, you see, that there is a blessing, a blessing to be found when we are persecuted, really for, for any sake. The blessing, you see, is that a man cannot travel too far down the road of persecution, no matter why it is he is being persecuted, until he is forced to examine himself. And all sorts of wonderful blessings can come to us when we are willing to take the time and sometimes are forced to examine our motives and our goals. You see, we never want to take for granted the idea that as long as someone is persecuting us, it is for righteousness' sake. That's not true. Sometimes we are being persecuted because of our own simple stupidity, because of our sloppiness, because of our selfishness, because of our sin. But we will never know that, will we, until we have to look at ourselves and many times we will never do this until we know persecution. And sometimes when we do look at ourselves, we realize that we are being persecuted not for righteousness' sake, not because of our virtues, but because of our faults. And the great blessing here is that we must come to the realization that we must change or be willing to be content with being persecuted the rest of our lives. Now, you see, if we come to the conclusion, though, that we are being persecuted for righteousness' sake, there comes a blessing as well. If we know that the reason somebody is picking on us, calling us ugly names, trying to see our defeat and our demise, and we know it is because we're trying to search for righteousness. We're hungering and thirsting after that which is right and good because we're trying to be merciful, because we're trying to be pure in heart, because we're trying to make peace, because we're trying to be sons of God, if that is the reason. 
A blessing comes to us when we realize that there is justification for the hate that we have caused against ourselves. And that's a blessing when we, when we know this, because you see, when that happens, ladies and gentlemen, there can come into your life a great blessing called confidence, a confidence that can come into your life only when you are being persecuted for righteousness' sake. An individual has said, and how right he is, that, that we are known not only by the friends that we keep, but by the enemies that we make. Did not Jesus himself tell us the same thing? Beware when all men speak well of you. You see, there's a certain excitement, an exhilaration, a, a confidence that comes into your life when you realize not only God, but other people, your peers, are able to recognize that you are on the Lord's side. When that issue of identity is settled once and for all, you, you have a confidence. You know who you, whose you are and whom you serve. This is an indication not only to God, but to other people in the world that you cannot be tossed to and fro with every wind and doctrine, but that you have depth, that you are trying to be righteous in the sight of God. Confidence comes, but not only that, we can find a comfort in being persecuted for righteousness' sake that we can find nowhere else. The Bible says that when father and mother forsake you, the Lord will take you up. Unfortunately, some of us don't really live close to the Lord and feel his everlasting arms around about us until we know persecution for righteousness' sake. If you ever want to see a man really pray, listen to a man who is being persecuted for righteousness' sake. If you ever want to see a man humble, look at a man who is being persecuted for righteousness' sake. If you ever want to know what it is to be poor in spirit, look at the man who is being persecuted for righteousness' sake. We live closer with God when we're being persecuted for his sake than we do any other time in our lives, and that's a great comfort when we walk close with God. And then above all, I think the great blessing that comes with the knowledge that we are a continuance, a continuance of biblical history. That can come only when we know that we are being persecuted for righteousness' sake. For do you realize that when someone reviles you, when somebody hates you, when somebody despises you, when somebody wants to see you dead because of your belief in Jesus Christ. Do you realize, ladies and gentlemen, you are walking, you are treading where the saints have trod. You are within that gallant fellowship of every saint that has ever lived, is living, or will ever live. When we are like this, you see, we are individuals who stand next to and alongside of, of St. Abraham, St. Moses, St. Elijah, St. John the Baptist, St. Paul, 
St. Augustine, St. Francis of Assisi, St. Martin Luther, St. John Calvin. We are one with them. Their lives have touched us. You see, our lives do not begin when we are born, and they do not end when we die. But as Edmund Burke has said, we are joined together in a compact society where we touch those individuals who have lived before us and great lives yet unborn. But unless we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, we cannot possibly know this feeling that we are a continuance of biblical history. But ladies and gentlemen, when we do know, when we do know through self-examination that we are being blessed for persecution's sake, and we have that new confidence, and we find that close comfort, and we know we are in the continuance of biblical history, then and only then do we have the reward that is offered to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We have the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And when we have that, you see, it is then and only then that we have that peace. And we are able to run with patience the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, yet is set down at the right hand of God. We're with him. And when that happens, the kingdom of heaven has come on earth, and it is ours. In the name of the Father who inspired these Beatitudes, in the name of the Son who spoke them, and in the name of the Holy Spirit who interprets them, amen. Father, be with us as we attempt to know your will. And as we march closer to another Easter, may we realize thy blessing, that we are blessed to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of his Holy Spirit be and abide with you all now and forevermore. Amen.